Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. turning to 1 Corinthians 14 this morning. Two short verses. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 and 19. This is the word of the Lord. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we think upon your worship, the history of your church, Lord, we ask that you would give us your wisdom. Bless every one of our meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So it's Reformation Day, one Sunday a year usually, no guarantees. We give attention to our history, our heritage, uh, looking back, and I don't think I've preached a Reformation Day sermon. Maybe I have here and there. Usually I just keep plowing through the books we're in. And that's what I had intended to do earlier this week, but then started thinking about the uh, sermon that I delivered three weeks ago up at New Geneva Academy's lecture. And so I'm taking that today and I'm going to try to adapt it on the fly, or maybe not. Keep in mind that it was delivered to pastors Right, and so that was my—that's who I was exhorting, and so you have to make the translation in your head at a few points on that. But I think this will be instructive to us, and so um, stick with me here. So let's begin this way. Um, it's the year 1555. Okay, you're alive, and you walk into a Roman Catholic church for worship. Right? Let's say you're in Paris and you attend the Mass in the Notre Dame. So before you walk through those front doors, you are awed by the amazing intricacy of the architecture. Right? We've all seen it, at least pictures. Flying buttresses, stained glass windows, gargoyles, and all of that. You walk through the tall front doors and gaze at those amazingly tall ceilings that uh, burned down several years ago. Ornate carvings of men and angels, crucifixes, various biblical scenes depicted in the stained glass all the way around you. And all of it is just this magnificent feast for the eyes. It's a spectacle to look at. You go further into the space and there are the stations of the cross set up so that you can... uh, worship at those statues and stations. There are statues to saints. There are candles everywhere. There are relics that are to be venerated. You see the priests then, and they're wearing these luxurious outer garments, the chasuble, covered in embroidery, 
along with their stoles, which announces that they are sacerdotal priests. Okay? Then after that, so you're dazzled by all of this as you come in. Then after that, you observe the liturgy of the high mass. Bard Thompson in his Liturgies of the Western Church says this about the Mass. What is the Mass? In the Middle Ages, three conceptions attained prominence. One, the Mass as an epiphany of God amongst men, which focused attention upon the reality of the Eucharistic presence, upon the consecration at which it occurred, and upon the priest by whose action it was affected. So it's this epiphany among men, this this magical epiphany that took place among men. Second, the mass of the sacrifice offered under God for the benefit of the living and the dead. And then three, notice the living and the dead. The mass was an allegorical drama of the whole economy of redemption. It's an allegory of all of, the the, the one service is an allegory of the um, the whole redemption. Okay? So let's walk briefly through the high mass. How many of you been to a mass service in a Roman Catholic church? Uh, half, yeah, half of you. It may or may not have looked like this. Um, here's, here's what happened. You would come in to the sanctuary and everything would be performed in front of you. You would, have, you would have an introit and a Kyrie eleison sung by a choir. The ministers would then enter, and then the, the ministers did a whole bunch of stuff privately and secretly up front. You, just, you, you didn't see it, but they would do an invocation, a nomine patris, and then they would, they would say a few psalms and chunks of, of prayers. Um, Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord. And then they, there was a, a, a confession among the celebrants. And the celebrants were, the, there was the ministers and the celebrants. The celebrant was the guy who was going to perform the consecration of the mass. The ministers assisted him. And so they would confess their sins to one another with the confitior and the misereator. And at that point, they struck their breasts three times. Okay? That would happen more than one time through the service. It happens at various points through the t- service. And that's where they say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea mag... Uh, I can't remember it now. There's some other word in there. Striking their breasts. And then there were some more psalms, and then there were collects, which are little prayers. And then there's the blessing of the incense, and then the altars are sensed by the ministers, right? The altar where the consecration will take place gets some... Get some good smells on it. And then the glory in excelsis was said secretly by the celebrant. So he just mumbles it under his voice. And then the choir sings it. There are salutations and prayers for the day, after which the celebrant says the epistle in gradual silently. So he's up there just saying them in his head silently or just whispering them so no one can hear them. And then the epistle is sung by the subdeacon. There's a response, Deo gratias. So they responded to the reading of the word of the Lord or the sung word of the Lord, thanks be to God, right? The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. 
The gradual was then sung by the choir. The tractor sequence was sung by the choir while our said prayers in preparation for the gospel. There's a munda cormeum, the jubi domine benediciere, the dominus sit in corde tuo, and then there's a salutation of the gospel by the celebrant. The gospel is then recited in a very low tone so as not to be heard. Response by the ministers, praise be to Christ, after the reading of the gospel, the same is repeated except for the celebrant's blessing is added by a deacon. Then the gospel is, the gospel is read or sung with lights and incense, right? And then responses to that are sung by the ministers. And then the preacher goes to the pulpit. And this was done in the vernacular. Everything we've done up to this point in the service would have been Latin, which the people did not speak and most of the priests did not speak either. They did not understand what they were saying themselves. Okay? And so he goes in, he does the bidding prayers, epistle or gospel is read in the vernacular, interesting, and then there's a sermon, homily, short, The Nicene Creed is then sung as the Gloria in Excelsis. Everybody bows when you get to the part and was made man. Right? Everybody in unison bows at that part. And then there are some bidding prayers. And then finally you get to what everybody is there for, which is the liturgy of the upper room. Right? All of that preceding stuff, people just didn't care about. Right? In fact, people only showed up often for the consecration of the host, and then left. They wanted to see the, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ, and they believed that that was enough, and then they would just go home. Okay, but listen to this. Here's the liturgy of the upper room. Psalm verses are sung throughout while the celebrant proceeds secretly. There's the offering of the bread with some little prayers. Then you admixture the water and the wine, and there's some little prayers. And then there's the offering of the chalice and some little prayers. All throughout this, at various stages, the, the, the uh, celebrant is to look at the crucifix across the sanctuary nine times during the service at various elements. At this point, he's up to number four, where he has to gaze at the crucifix. Okay. And then there's the sensing of the elements, the sensing of the altars, the sensing of the ministers, right? They get all smellied. The washing of the celebrant's hands, okay? Then the oblation, finally said audibly. And then there are more collects for the day, prayers for the day. The salutation and the sursum corda, the Lord be with you and also with your spirit, lift up your hearts. And then the prayer of consecration. That's the centerpiece of the Mass, okay? There's the preface and proper preface sung by the celebrants now. And then the Sanctus is sung by the choir. And then the announcement with bells and the host is lifted into the air by the celebrant. Right? Bells and incense, words of institution, singing of the Benedictus qui venit at this point. And then it concludes and is brought down. The Lord's Prayer is then sung by the celebrant. Then there's the pox and fraction and the commixture. And then the Agnus Dei is said by the celebrant. And then the celebrant does his own communion. Right? So they serve one another, the priests and the, 
the, those serving with him. And then he see, receives the bread, he receives the cup, and then possibly the people might get one kind communion. In other words, they would get the bread, usually not the wine. And the Roman Catholic Church said that that was enough because when you get one element, because it's the body of Christ, you're getting Christ. And then they clean the chalice, right? And then they do some more little prayers and then they cover the chalice. And then there's some post-communion prayers, some, the dismissal of the people, the blessing of the people, a benediction. And then they read John 1, 1 through 14 at the end. And then everybody says, Deo gratias, at the end of it, thanks be to God. Now that's a Latin mass, right? And think about this. Much, if not all, of the service just described happened behind what's called a rude screen. The whole thing can barely be observed by those who came to observe it. It's behind a screen Wikipedia says this about the rood screen. The rood screen was a physical and symbolic barrier separating the chancel and the domain of the clergy from the nave where the lay people gathered to worship. It was solid only to the waist height and then richly decorated with pictures of saints and angels. When kneeling, the congregation could, see, could not see the priests, but might do so through the upper part of the screen when he elevated the host. That's all they were there for. The use of the rood screen, strangely enough, ended after the Council of Trent and when they reformed their worship in 1570. It's kind of like they thought, maybe these reformed guys got a point. Um, another thing to note, the significance of the elevation of the host was so, again, so strongly st stressed that that was the moment that people thought they needed to be there and they cared nothing about anything else. Now, if you read Calvin's works, you know that he uses some of his strongest language in regard to the mass, as do other reformers, okay? And among other things, he called it the head of all abominations. Here's just a flavor of what he thought of the mass from a letter he wrote to someone who asked him if, for the sake of peace with his neighbors, he could just attend mass even though he's committed to the reformed faith. And Calvin says, come now and consider with me in regard to a pretended observance of the Mass with what kind of conscience you can be pre present at the performance of its mysteries. Immediately on your entrance, the altar offers itself to, to your view, differing little from a common table, but proclaiming by its very name that it is to be used for sacrificing. This, this itself assuredly is not free from blasphemy. You can see the priest coming forward who boasts that by the anointing of four fingers, he has been appointed mediator between God and man who carrying off from the faithful of the church and from the supper itself that promise in which Christ gives his body and blood to his servants to be eaten under the symbols of bread and wine, arrogates it to himself and his fellow slayers who dishonor his heavenly supper by giving it the name of mass in which it is completely inverted and deformed. The people stand by, persuaded that every one of these things is divine. You stand among them. Remember, he's, he's talking to this guy who wants to just go there and not be defiled and 
Can I be a good neighbor? He says, and you stand among them pretending to be similarly affected? When the imposter has gone up to the altar, he begins to play with three acts, partly motionary, partly stationary, and with those magical mutterings by which he thinks himself, or at least would have others to think, he is to call Christ down from heaven, by which he devotes him when he called down to sacrifice. And Calvin, you know, it's a 25-page letter, and, and the whole thing is like, no, you must not participate in idolatry. Are you crazy? He doesn't say that, but he comes close. Okay, you're back now in, in 1555. You walk into a service at St. Pierre's in Geneva, where Calvin is presiding. The crucifixes are removed. Statues of saints are gone. Relics are all put away or destroyed or probably sold. The rude screen is gone. It's taken down. The altar is gone. The interior walls and pillars of the church are whitewashed to cover all the Catholic icons. They just plastered them over. Um, the stained glass windows are broken out, and that caused a few problems. It let the birds in. So in 1577, the council ordered that netting be put up to keep the birds out. Netting. They didn't fix the windows. They just put up netting to keep the birds out. The organ was collecting dust and was not used. Finally, the pipes were melted down and used to make plates for the hospital and communion vessels for the churches. And all of that above is from the book that us men read, um, Manich's, Calvin's Company of Pastors. Now, Manich records a description of the service in Geneva. Put down with pen on paper by an unsympathetic attender at one of the services in 1555, a man named Antoine Catalan. He begins with a description of the interior of the building. He says this, It is altogether like the interior of a college or school, full of benches, with a pulpit in the middle for the preacher. And in front of the pulpit, there are benches for women and small children. And around them, raised up, the men are seated without any distinction of personal rank. The stained glass windows are just about all knocked out, and the plaster dust is up to the ankles. And the service Catalan, uh, Catalan describes this way. He says, Immediately the townspeople entered the church, each person choosing his own place to sit, and in school, as in school. And then they waited for the preacher to come to the pulpit, and immediately when the preacher appeared, all the people knelt down, except the preacher, and he began praying with uncovered head and his hands joined. His prayer was entirely in French, created out of his own imagination, extemporaneous prayer which concluded with the Lord's Prayer, but not the Ave Maria. Then all the people responded quietly, Amen. And two times a week, they sing a psalm before the sermon, but only in the cities. Everyone sings together, listen to this, while seated, men, women, girls, and infants. And if anyone recites a prayer on entering the church, he's pointed to and mocked and held to be a papist and idolater. <laughs> 
And now the liturgy of the church in Geneva during Calvin's time, as you know, infinitely simpler than the Roman Catholic Mass we just talked through. One, Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's called the votum. Two, an exhortation. Three, a confession of sin. Four, a prayer for pardon. Five, a metrical psalm sung congregationally. Six, a prayer for illumination before the sermon. Seven, a scripture reading. Eight, the sermon. Nine, a pastoral prayer. Ten, the Lord's Prayer said or sung congregationally. A prayer of preparation. Then the Apostles' Creed sung congregationally. The words of institution, fencing of the table, the distribution, usually with people processing forward to the table to receive the elements from the pastors and elders. The psalms are read while the elements are being distributed. Then there's a prayer of thanksgiving and a benediction. Now, does that sound familiar? That's essentially the way Reformed churches, you know, and especially ours, have laid out their liturgy. So you, you see merely by the difference in liturgy, the Reformers were committed to simplicity. Simplicity, and that's really what this whole thing is about. It doesn't take any work at all to find them writing about simplicity or a return to apostolic simplicity in their worship and church orders. The apostles teaching fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, right? Add to their simple liturgy the obvious change in clerical clothing, right? Simple, the, the Genevan guys wore simple academic gowns. They were black. They announced to the people that the pastors were there to not be sacerdotal priests, but merely there to teach them. That's what it signified, right? To appeal to their understanding and not to perform some mystical drama behind a screen that they could barely even see, you know, just an observational thing. Now, the reformers were not committed to simplicity for simplicity's sake. They believed that simplicity was the result of regulating our worship by the Word of God. Right? And simplicity led to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simplicity is important in communication. So here's the principle. Simplicity leads to understanding, and understanding in worship is key. Calvin makes the very point in the preface to his Genevan Psalter. So he writes this. There's the Genevan Psalter that he commissions, right? Music, words. Commissions it. It's used in their worship. He writes a preface. Here's what he says. For our Lord did not institute the order which we must observe when we convene in his name solely to amuse the world by seeing and looking at it, observing. Rather, however, he wished that profit would come from it to all his people, as St. Paul witnesses, commanding that all which is done in the church be directed toward the common edification of all. This the servant would not have commanded had it not been the intention of the master. But this cannot be done unless we are instructed to have intelligence of all that has been ordained for our profit. Because to say that we are able to have devotion either at prayers or ceremonies without understanding anything of them is a great mockery. However much it is commonly said, 
This is a thing neither dead nor brutish, this good affection toward God. Rather, it is a lively movement proceeding from the Holy Spirit when the heart is properly touched and the understanding is enlightened. Heart and mind, right? So simplicity in Calvin's day meant an end to worship as a spectacle, as this drama of redemption put before eyes that they just got to watch from a distance, watching that, that sacerdotal priest endowed with supernatural powers perform some mystical drama in ornate surroundings drenched in physical symbols. Right? Strangely enough, that's, that's how the evangelical megachurches do their worship today. Instead of rude screens, they have fog machines. The whole drive for simplicity and worship from the early reformers had the noble aim of teaching the people to understand the Word of God, of enlightening the understanding while avoiding all ostentation, right? All, you know, display of luxury. I just love how the, that, that sanctuary was described by the man who was there. You know, there's plaster everywhere. You don't see anything. There are benches and people just pick where they're going to seat and there's a pulpit. <laughs> Um, Hughes Oliphant Old, he's a, he's a Reformed teacher on liturgy, says this about Calvin's German colleague, Johannes Ecolampadius. Ecolampadius taught that Christian worship should be simple and without pompous ritual and sumptuous ceremony because the manner of life which Jesus taught was simple and without pretense. Think of Jesus walking into a Roman Catholic Mass. I mean, he would be like, where in the world did you guys get these ideas from? You know? And then he'd begin overturning the, the altar. What did Jesus do when he walked this earth in the flesh? It says this in Matthew 11, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. He went and taught and preached. He spoke to them in the, their common tongue. He just went and talked to the people. That's what he did. And every example we have of his preaching is very simple. It's this kind of preaching. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the sort of preaching that Jesus went. I mean, it's very clear, right? I mean, it's, it is, right? And he was the son of God. He had all wisdom, right? He, he created the world. And yet his preaching was, was like fifth grade level. If we preached like Jesus, many would tell us we were being simple-minded. Complexity tends to obscure the gospel while simplicity tends to make the gospel shine just more brightly. It has to be, it has to be um, shared with simplicity. Complex music, think about that. You know, why do we, why do we not do um, the, why do we not do Bach cantatas for our worship? Why do we play guitar and sing uh, paraphrases of psalms, right? Well, complexity in music does not tend to help the understanding. 
right? What does it do? It tends to focus the mind on notes and harmonies and contours and sounds, all of which distract the mind from thinking upon the words being offered to God in that form of prayer. Complexity in music begins to exclude people from participation also. Right? We like to fault Calvin for arguing for the removal of musical instruments from worship, but there are prudential reasons he did so. Think of it, unison a cappella congregational singing without instruments and choirs, led by the children of the church who learned the songs during the week at school. That's what they did. That's what they did. And that had the effect of bringing worship into the mouths of and hearts of the people in that church. Think about complex prayers. Complex prayers lead us to think that we will be heard for our eloquence and for our long-windedness. And they teach the people, they teach other people that they can't really pray. Complex vows, right? A necessary part of our worship that we just gave earlier. Those are too complex. We should make those simpler so that it's not some sort of incantation or feels like that. We should make them simple so that they're understood. What about complex, complex language in a service? No matter what sacred principle you think you're maintaining is, a, is, is to aim for aesthetics rather than understanding. The reformers use the vernacular language of the day. I would say they used the common tongue, but they also used the vernacular musical style of the day. You realize that? They did contemporary music. All because they wished to communicate, to clarify the word of God and to present Jesus Christ in all of his glory without the fog machine of complexity without the rude screen of complexity. Think about complex liturgies. Complex liturgies can lead to confusion, and I'm thinking of covenant renewal worship in this. It gives off vibes of the dramatical aspect of worship the Reformers rejected, that it's something to be observed going on before you. What about complex administration of the sacraments, washing and lifting and looking to the cross and the adoration of the elements? That's just plain idolatry. Blasphemous idolatry. Only three things are necessary when it comes to the administration of the sacraments. The words of institution, a prayer, and an exhortation. It's really pretty simple. Complex preaching leads to obscurity. And intellectuals love obscurity because it has the appearance of intelligence. And congregations love obscurity because... It allows them to invite their friends to church without fear the pastor is going to be working on their sins. Baxter and his Reformed pastor said this, It is no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of our Redeemer. It is no easy matter to speak so plain that the ignorant may understand us and so seriously that the deadest hearts may feel us and so convincingly that contradictory cavillers may be silenced. So complexity in, in preaching will lead your pastors to pulling their punches 
and replacing those punches with their eloquence, which probably won't even be eloquent. Right? And, and then his goal will just become to impress his hearers. Right? But it won't be to teach. It won't be to disciple. Right? Which is what the reformers were all about. It is certainly won't be about communicating. You know, are pastors humble servants of the Word of God or are they orators? Are they communicators or actors? Are they those who plead for souls or are they poets? Bad poets. Are they ministers of the word or gurus with hot takes on everything under the sun? You know, the work of ministers is to minister the word, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Think of what the apostle says to these sophisticated Corinthians, the verse we read at the outset. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. The tongues of angels. I mean, how could he resist? It would have been so impressive. But he's like, man, I'd rather have five words that you understood and there wasn't all this blah, 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 translating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for the sake of communicating clearly, we should aim for, and this, is, this comes out of the Reformation, simple liturgy, simple music, simple language, simple participation, simple preaching. That's it. So how, you know, and then, and I could stop there, but I'm not. Then I asked the guys, so how are we most likely to break this today? I mean, where do we go off the rails toward complexity and not toward um, simplicity? Um, and I just said, well, like some of us are tempted to complex liturgy. You get excited, you know, they, they, I said, you got excited when I walked through the Roman Rite. All those various different things, and doesn't that sound cool, and wouldn't that be neat, and um, I, I honestly despise it. Some are tempted to complex language, and, um, you know, it's like a church who commits themselves to the King James Version. For a relatively tiny theological commitment, you relegate understanding to the side. It makes no sense to me, Right? I mean, the King James is the sort of language that no pastor ever uses in any of his conversation or in the pulpit ever. And yet, there's a commitment to it. But as I thought about my own temptation, temptations of the brothers in Evangel Presbytery, this is what I came down on. I believe that the place where we are most likely to abandon simplicity in our preaching, it, it doesn't have to do with our language, um, I don't think any of us are committed to oratorical flourish. Um, but we, well, here's what I said. I'd like to warn you that you and I are in danger of abandoning a view of the authority of Scripture in a certain fashion. Abandoning the authority of Scripture. Perhaps because we live in a day of relativism and individualism, we think as pastors that we 
must convince people to obey the Word of God by using tactics, by using convincing sources from outside of the Word of God. Right? We believe that we must, for example, bring philosophy alongside Scripture so that those who have a philosophical mind will be convinced that Scripture allows their philosophical questions and supplies their philosophical answers. We do not think that the Word of God stands alone, that it is authoritative in its own right. Right? The Word of God does not need to be propped up, does not need to be fortified, it does not need to be supplemented. But we think it does. We really do. We think it does. Instead of seeing our work as simply explaining the meaning of the Word of God, think, you know, think of the scene in Nehemiah 8 where they read from the law of God, explaining the sense of it as they went along. But instead of that, we work very hard to convince people that the Word of God is reasonable according to a thousand lesser authorities. It's reasonable, and here's why. You know, you know this guy said this, and, and you know, Scripture fits with that. The way we shun simplicity for complexity or, or mystery is to think that we have to filter what God says in His Word through psychology, through apologetic schemes, through astrophysics, through political science, or through social justice. We do this because we fear the Word of God will not be relevant unless we do so. We do not think that Scripture stands on its own. We do not think that Scripture is authoritative in its own right. We think the Word of God needs our intellectual stewardship, right? And at certain places... We think it just plainly needs our correction, as demonstrated by our Bible translation committees. Which is to say, we are in danger of abandoning the simple proclamation of the Word of God, and that is to simply abandon the Word of God. Our task is not to make the Word of God palatable or to bend it to fit modern sensibilities, Yes, we must take into consideration our context, but that consideration does not lead us to manipulate Scripture, but only to anticipate the way it's going to be rejected, right, or received. And so our job is this, to explain Scripture's meaning. This is my job up here. Explain Scripture's meaning and insist on obedience. That's it. It is, after all, that the sheep's love for God works out in what? Their obedience to His Word. So the content of our preaching should be, here's what the Scripture says, here's what the Scripture means, now believe and live accordingly. That's it. That's what the Reformers did. Right? That's what those early Reformers did. Instead, we preach this way. Here's, here's what it means. Here's why that is reasonable. Here's why that is respectable according to science or philosophy or, or this or that alternative or even competing source of authority. Here's how you can fulfill your obedience spiritually without really having to obey. And all of the scripture simply amounts to believe the gospel more and more. That's how we preach today. Here's what scripture says and it's kind of embarrassing. So let me bring in some other reasonable sources that sort of help you swallow the pill. 
Now, am I advocating for a simple dispensational literalism in how we read and apply Scripture? Nope, I'm not. Am I advocating for biblicism? Um, perhaps, right? Read John Frame's good article in defense of something close to biblicism, okay? What I am advocating for is the old path of, get it, sola scriptura. That's all this is. It's one of those five rallying cries of the Reformation. It's Reformation Day. I'm saying Latin up here, which is ironic. Sola Scriptura. That the supreme standard of truth is to be found in God's Word alone. We must trust the Word of God to work on the conscience without thinking we need to administer it with a spoonful of woke sugar or political science sugar or psychology sugar or philosophy sugar or hot take sugar. Hot take sugar. (laughs) Be like James Brown. We act as if God's Word needs more than explanation and application. We act as if it needs supplementation or like those sacerdotal priests I described earlier, as if the Word of God needs mediation and we are the ones with the superpowers to mediate it, right? And my intent in saying that is not to discount ordination at all, right? But I am not a sacerdotal priest up here, not at all, right? I'm a minister of the Word. That's my privilege. Give the word. Our task is to tell the sheep how to tell the sheep to know and believe what God has said to them. We sow the word of God. Here's what God has said about your unbelief. Here's what God has said about your marriage or about marriage in general. Here's what God has said about money. Now walk by faith. Obey the word of God. It's really pretty simple the task. It's just, when you lack courage, it's really, really hard to speak clearly. Our teaching, our preaching, our counseling ought to look like this. Well, what does God's Word say? You know, somebody comes to talk to you, well, what does God's Word say? And and they respond, well... You know, it can't mean this, can it? (laughs) Is it really true that a man who doesn't provide for his own household has denied the faith? I mean, is that really what the Apostle Paul is saying when he says that if a man doesn't provide for his own household, he has denied the faith? And at this point, the crisis in your mind happens, in the pastor's mind You know, will I allow the Word of God to dash this man's disobedience to the ground, or will I come up with a few reasons why the text doesn't really mean what it says and why obedience is really not necessary or can be fulfilled in some cosmic way without bringing, you know, without him having to bring home the bacon? which Bonhoeffer concludes is the tyranny of cheap grace, which will leave a man in his sins and declare him righteous. It will leave him thinking he has Christ when he is unwilling to follow Christ. 
right? It is, the, it is only then, as a man leaves his old way of life and struggles against his flesh, that the grace of God will be understood to be so costly and have any meaning at all. We haven't even tried to obey and we're claiming grace, grace, grace. Well, think about grace after you have tried to obey and failed. And then grace means something. That's what, that's what Luther meant when he said sin boldly. Try, 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 try. And grace comes in at the end. If you lead with grace, you never will pursue obedience to God. You never will. So our preaching must be simple, explain God's word, exhort to obedience. It means ministers of the word must treat God's word as authoritative, and please hear this, to do that, you have to know God's word very well. You have to know it. As to the authority of the word of God, brothers and sisters, listen to this. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of the Lord are pure words, silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so, my, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And as for knowing God's word, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. So explain the word, exhort to obedience. That's what fathers need to do in their homes. Explain the word, exhort to obedience. Right? Oh, there's more here, but I think I will stop there. Don't be ashamed of the word of God. It is, it is God's will. It is his word. It is breathed out from his mouth. It is authoritative. It does not need supplementation. It needs to just go out and God will perform his work through his word. Amen.